welcome to the Clerk Commute Podcast. Where we discuss clerkship content, share up-to-date research, work through interesting cases, and gather position advice for your next rotation. Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of the Clerk Commute. Today, we will be learning about hyponatremia, a common challenge on the internal medicine wards. This episode was edited by Dr. Monty Sandu, an internal medicine physician at St. Michael's Hospital. So, Alex, to start us off, what is hyponatremia? So the definition of hyponatremia is a serum sodium below 135 millimoles per liter and is the result of relative water retention. So we can have two types of hyponatremia. It can be an acute presentation, so less than 48 hours, or a chronic presentation, which is over 48 hours. Symptoms are more severe in an acute presentation when sodium decreases over a short period of time, and this usually needs to be corrected more quickly. However, both contribute to morbidity. So this is the most common disorder of body fluid and electrolyte balance. It can be found in up to 35% of hospitalized patients of general hospital populations, and this is why it's so important for us to cover a topic like this today. It's associated with increased morbidity and mortality and increased length of hospital stay among patients. So among these patients, how would they present clinically? How can I recognize patients with hyponatremia? So the clinical presentation of hyponatremia is quite varied, and it really is a wide spectrum of clinical symptoms. So with acute hyponatremia, this causes hypoosmolar cerebral edema that results in elevated intracranial pressure. So some symptoms include nausea, vomiting, confusion, headache, cardiorespiratory distress, altered mental status, seizures, coma, and death. The severity of the symptoms depends on the rapidity, duration, and the severity of the hyponatremia. Chronic hyponatremia occurs more slowly and the brain has a chance to adapt, so this can sometimes even be asymptomatic. Some subtle signs may be present, such as gait disturbances, falls, concentration, and cognitive deficits. Okay, great. That's really helpful. But now, once I've identified the patients, how would I manage it? So the management is based on the cause of hyponatremia, which is discerned through volume status, serum osmolality, and urine sodium. So step one is to check the serum osmolality. And then step two is to check the volume status. So after we check the serum osmolality, we can have one of three results that come back. So we can have a normal serum osmolality, and this is called pseudohyponatremia. And this is due to displacement of serum water when lipids or proteins are elevated, leading to artificially low measured serum sodium. In this case, we would want to investigate for hypercholesterolemia, hyperproteinemia, and treat the underlying condition. The next result we could get back is a high serum osmolality, and this would be hypertonic hyponatremia. But wait, how could someone who is hyponatremic have hypertonic saline? That seems counterintuitive. That's a good question. So this is because another solute is drawing water out into the plasma, and this dilutes the sodium. So most commonly, this is glucose in the case of hyperglycemia, as diabetes is common. So in this case, we have to be sure to rule out hyperosmolar hyponatremia caused by hyperglycemia. So this causes a non-hypotonic hyponatremia. And in this case, then serum osmolality will be high. So it's really important that we ask about diabetes on history, look for signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia, 
and measure their serum glucose concentration and calculate a corrected serum sodium. Other osmols that can cause high serum osmolality that leads to hyponatremia include mannitol, iodine-based contrast, and irrigant solutions. And then finally, the last result that we can get back is a low serum osmolality, and this is hypotonic hyponatremia. This is the most common type of hyponatremia on general medicine and has the longest differential. To narrow down that differential, we need to assess volume status. Right. So this is step two now that you mentioned before. Yes, it is step two. So Meg, do you remember how to assess a patient's volume status? Yes. So on physical exam, we can determine the volume status and differentiate between hypovolemic, euvolemic, and hypervolemic. So signs of volume depletion include postural tachycardia and hypotension, a low JVP and dry mucous membranes. Signs of volume overload include edema, ascites, dyspnea, a high JVP, and crackles at the lung bases on auscultation. So now that we know the patient's volume status, where do we go from here? Awesome. So if we have volume depletion, then that's a sign of hypovolemic hyponatremia. And this occurs in extracellular fluid volume contraction due to things such as vomiting, diarrhea, excessive sweating, or use of diuretics. It can be really difficult, though, to distinguish from euvolemic hyponatremia. The diagnosis is confirmed by a low urine sodium of less than 20 millimoles per liter and a low urine volume. Urine osmolality is usually high because the volume is low. An important caveat is that patients on diuretics may not have low serum sodium despite being hypovolemic, so always consider a broader differential for these patients. Some other helpful investigations include serum urea nitrogen, and this would be increased in a hypovolemic state and a normal in a euvolemic state. The treatment for this is to replace both salt and water with normal or isotonic IV saline. And we want to be sure for the rate of correction using serial sodium levels in urine output. The urine output over 100 mils per hour is a warning sign for overcorrection. What if the patient has a normal volume status? So a normal volume status is what I just mentioned, known as euvolemic hyponatremia. And this can be divided into two groups. So a syndrome of inappropriate ADH release and its mimics. So in this case, urine is being inappropriately concentrated and sodium is being lost via urine. And the second group is conditions that are not associated with inappropriate ADH release. We'll start with the second group, conditions that aren't associated with inappropriate ADH release because it's a little bit simpler. These are conditions related to inadequate solute intake or excessive fluid intake. So Meg, if the problem was that the patient was consuming fluids in excess or not consuming enough solutes, what would you expect their urine osmolality to be? Well, in that case, I would expect it to be low. That's right. So euvolemic hyponatremia plus low urine osmolality equals excess fluid intake or low solute intake. Examples of some of these conditions include beer drinker potomania, low solute intake, and is common in endurance athletes. It can also occur in psychogenic polydipsia or excessive water consumption that can occur rarely in patients with certain psychiatric conditions. The treatment of this is cessation of the contributing behavior and or treatment of the underlying condition. Okay, now for our second category syndrome of inappropriate ADH release and its mimics. Meg, do you remember what ADH does? Under normal circumstances, ADH, 
also called vasopressin, is released by the posterior pituitary in response to hyperosmolar plasma. It causes the kidneys to retain water, leading to more concentrated urine. So if ADH was being secreted inappropriately, then the urine osmolality would be high. Perfect. So with euvolemic hyponatremia, plus high urine osmolality and high urine sodium concentration, this suggests that urine is being inappropriately concentrated. So SIADH or its mimics. SIADH is a clinical diagnosis for euvolemic hyponatremia when other causes have been ruled out. Mimickers of SIADH include glucocorticoid deficiency and severe hypothyroidism. SIADH is a diagnosis of exclusion that implies normal renal, thyroid, and adrenal function. Some of the causes include malignancy, intracranial pathologies, certain medications, and pulmonary pathology. How would we treat this? So the treatment is ideally managing the underlying disorder or discontinuing the offending medication, which is not always possible as we know. So the first line is fluid restriction, and then second line is salt and or urea tablets, which are occasionally combined with administration of furosemide under the guidance of nephrology. Third line treatment is Vapdans, a third line therapy, which is also used under the guidance of nephrology. So for hypoosmolar or hypotonic hyponatremia, we've covered the differential for hypovolemia and euvolemia. So that leaves... Hypervolemia. So hypervolemic hyponatremia is the result of increased extracellular fluid volume with reduced effective arterial blood volume. So for example, in congestive heart failure, cirrhosis, or nephrotic syndrome. Pathogenesis of this presentation is low effective circulating volume, which is then sensed by the kidney and initiates avid sodium and water retention, which increases the total body water disproportionately to sodium. In this case, urine sodium level is typically low, around less than 20 millimoles per liter, unless the patient is taking a diuretic. In patients with acute or chronic renal failure, it will be over 20. Treatment for increased extracellular fluid-related hyponatremia includes water restriction and a low-salt diet. Some medications we can use is loop diuretics to promote renal salt and water excretion, vasopressin receptor antagonists or VAPDANs that I mentioned before, which work by inhibiting ADH, which binds to renal vasopressin receptor and results in controlled increase in serum sodium by excreting free water. This is effective for managing hypervolemic and euvolemic hyponatremia. Okay, Alex, this all seems pretty complex. Why can't we just give patients with hyponatremia sodium? So rapid correction of sodium concentration can cause osmotic demyelination syndrome, aka central pontine myelinosis, which causes brain injury or brain death. Serum sodium concentration with normal saline or vasopressor receptor antagonist should not exceed 8 milliequivalents per liter over 24 hours. And patients should be monitored during serum sodium correction. Would there ever be a situation when we would correct sodium more quickly? So in some cases, we may give hypertonic saline. So in patients with neurological compromise or seizures, they require rapid correction to prevent cerebral edema. In this case, IV hypertonic sodium chloride is given in a monitored setting with potential use of desmopressin under the guidance of nephrology. Okay, Meg, now that we've gone over hyponatremia, let's do some practice cases. So... Keith is a 60-year-old man with orthopnea and dyspnea on exertion. 
He was diagnosed with congestive heart failure two years ago, which is currently being managed with furosemide. He presents to the ER with nausea and headache. His JVP is seven centimeters above the sternal angle. He has marked pitting edema and crackles at his lung bases. His serum sodium is 125 millimoles per liter, which is low. What is causing the low serum sodium? This patient has a history of congestive heart failure and is presenting with symptoms of decompensation. His volume assessment reveals that he is hypervolemic. His his decompensating heart failure is the most likely cause of his hyponatremia, and he would have hypoosmolar hypertonic hyponatremia. Amazing. And what is the first-line treatment? We would treat with water restriction and salt restriction, and then address the underlying cause extracellular fluid volume overload with a loop diuretic. Great. Let's try one more case. So Jeff is a 35-year-old adult tailor who was diagnosed with schizophrenia 10 years ago. Over the past three years, he has been gradually increasing his water intake alongside increasing anxiety. He presents to the outpatient psychiatry clinic after experiencing abnormal jerky movements. His serum sodium is found to be low and his urine osmolality is also low, less than 100. What is the most likely diagnosis? The most likely diagnosis is psychogenic polydipsia. Great. It's important to know that certain psychiatric medications can cause SIADH hyponatremia. So not every patient with schizophrenia and hyponatremia has psychogenic polydipsia. In this case, how did you know this was psychogenic polydipsia and not SIADH? Well, the question told us that his urine osmolality is low. In in SIADH, urine is inappropriately concentrated and the osmolality would be high. Great. And is this hypovolemic, euvolemic, or hypervolemic hyponatremia? The root cause is excess water intake, so most likely it's euvolemic. So if Jack becomes confused and experiences a seizure when in the hospital, what is the next best step? Seizures are one of the situations where rapid correction of the hypertonic saline is indicated. IV hypertonic saline, or 3%, 1 to 2 milliliters per kilogram per hour in a monitored setting would be the next best step. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Clerk Commute Podcast. Catch you in your next commute.